The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, November 26th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson talked to George Stephanopoulos on ABC yesterday. My take? Seems young. He's 28. He seems anodyne. My goal when I originally tried to get out of the car was to get out and just talk with him for 30 seconds till backup arrived. And then we could investigate the, the stealing further. And if arrest needed to be made, we'd have assistance and it would be much safer and more tactical. This was the first instance in quite some time where one of the favorite phrases of the internet turned out to be justified. Breaks silence. Officer Wilson broke his silence. Break silence has now become a synonym for says anything. Here's a roundup of people who've broken their silence. Hillary Clinton breaks silence on immigration because, you know, Hillary Clinton never gives speeches or anything. Dinesh D'Souza breaks silence on Obama persecution. Yeah, because the author of The Roots of Obama's Rage, he's always very reticent to blame the president for the fact that he, Dinesh D'Souza, pled guilty to illegal campaign contributions or Monica Lewinsky breaks her silence again. Yeah, she did write a book in 1999. She did do a Vanity Fair piece, and now she is tweeting. She keeps breaking and breaking and breaking her silence. Susan Lucci breaks silence. The incident here was that she's now hosting a reality TV show about love triangles, and the reason that she was silent, because before she talked about this, she wasn't hosting a reality TV about love triangles. Richard Simmons breaks silence on reclusive tough time. This is the category of break silence, like, we didn't really care to hear you talk, but it turns out Richard Simmons' dog died and he had a knee injury, so, you know, it was a tough time. Joaquin Phoenix breaks silence on Doctor Strange. It was a role he didn't get. Here's one. Speaking for the first time, Andrea Garvey, mother of Bachelor Blake Garvey, broke her silence defending the 31-year-old real estate agent, saying accusations that he keeps 10 Cabbage Patch dolls on his bed are absolutely rubbish. That was the Australian Bachelor, by the way. And then there's this. Liam Hemsworth breaks his silence on Miley Cyrus. And then he broke his retainer on an especially hard biscuit. But why break your silence? Now, he's breaking his silence because I'm sure that he has a moral compass, unlike Teresa Caputo and her staff. Teresa Caputo is, by the way, the Long Island medium, so named because her shtick is neither rare nor well done. Oh, no. Let me now break my silence on that last joke. I stole it from Ernie Kovacs. On the show today, I break my silence on how to have a good argument over Thanksgiving. We break our silence on Thanksgiving eating strategy. And I also interview a man who, if he weren't to break his silence, would be unemployable because he's the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade announcer. But now, stuffing strategy. Joining me now is Dan Pashman. He's the host of the Sporkful podcast distributed by WMYC. He's written uh, a great book called Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious, which is like a faux textbook, Dan, would you say? It's a real textbook for a fake university. (laughs) There's some (laughs) fakeness about it, yeah. So look, maybe uh, you're listening to this on Thanksgiving and uh, the food hasn't hit the table yet. Well, let's talk about that. What's the optimal time to serve food on Thanksgiving? Two o'clock. I agree. Second quarter, Lions game, going to halftime. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, because, I mean, you want to factor in football, but you also want to 
Here's the thing. You want to eat Thanksgiving dinner in air quotes. Yeah. You want to have time to recuperate a bit. I recommend the post-meal constitutional. Yes. Then you want dessert at four or five. Mm -hmm. And then you want to be able to go back for snacking. Yeah. You need that late night. You need to go into the fridge at eight o'clock at night before that night game kicks off and, and start pulling meat right off the carcass. If you eat the food on Thanksgiving Day or Thanksgiving night, are they technically leftovers? Yes. Okay. Once they're wrapped and put into the fridge, they become leftover from the meal. Do you like jellied cranberries or the real kind? Like the real jelly kind. from the can? I like. To, I mean, they, they, they should be a little tart. Yes. You want some tart in there, and you want to taste the real cherries. I mean, I'm partial to my mom's, as so many people are, partial to their own mom's cooking, but um, she puts a little bit of um, orange zest in the cranberry sauce, which I think is a great touch. My theory is that cranberry is fine if it was so good people would eat it other meals. I think that's fair. I mean, cranberry in general is, you know, it's a tough sell. Yeah. I mean, have you ever eaten a, a, a plain cranberry? I mean, they're painfully tart. <sighs> yeah, it's so tart that it's like the kind of food where you would say no one would think to incorporate this into anything that should be eaten. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, it's so much sugar on it. Right. Surround the foods that you don't want the animals to eat with cranberry <laughs> and so as to ward them off. But, you know, same deal, same deal. Even though I indict cranberry as if they were so good, why don't... Stuffing, you rarely find stuffing in other walks of life, but I wish you did. Oh, love yeah. stuffing. Uh, there should absolutely be more stuffing in, in the world. And yeah. I actually do cook stuffing on a semi-regular basis. Maybe not so much in the summer, but yeah, like that's a great hearty food. And I've gotten pretty good at replicating amazing stuffing without having to cook it inside a turkey. Oh, what's the key? Well, because, I mean, I do think on Thanksgiving, you should cook stuffing inside the turkey and cook more on the side and then mix them yeah. together. Well, the stuffing and, and the stuffing in the turkey is stuffing and the stuffing on the side is dressing? No, still call the stuffing on the side stuffing because stuff, stuffing is better. And once you mix the <laughs> stuffing from inside the turkey with the stuffing from outside the turkey, all of it becomes stuffing. Right, right. Anytime you touch inside the turkey stuffing, all substances like that become stuffing. Right. And, and yes. there's just something about- If Pepto-Bismol touches it, if motor oil touches it, <laughs> yeah. if you touch inside the turkey stuffing, it's stuffing. Yeah. Right. There's just something about the juices that stuffing absorbs when it sits inside a turkey for a long time that's hard to replicate. But what I recommend, if you want to throw together stuffing on a Tuesday night and you're not cooking a whole turkey, you get your stuffing crumbs, and all you got to add is butter, yeah. chicken broth, yeah. full-sodium chicken broth, and then here's the key, chicken schmaltz. Schmaltz is rendered chicken fat. You can get it in the kosher section, freezer section of a lot of your grocery stores. It's like a classic Jewish cooking fat because you can make kosher food with it because it's not dairy. It's mm -hmm. not dairy. And that gives you like the animal fat in there and you get the dairy fat and you get the salt and you get it all and you can make damn fine stuffing if you just put those three things in with the breadcrumbs and then bake it for a little while. My theory as to why stuffing never took off is probably the reason why schmaltz never took off. The association of the words, I know you love words, you know, where a society that's increasingly gaining weight and we feel bad about this, it doesn't stop us on our path to weight gain. But you can eat a food that's terrible for you, but if it's called... I don't know, a chicken wing, then you'll just eat it. But if it's called stuffing, it reminds you a little too much about what it's doing to your body. Yeah, yeah it, it needs a rebranding. Right, <laughs> just like chicken fat. Have some chicken. Oh, it's fat. I don't know if I want some fat. All right, we'll call it chicken wonderflul. All right, I'll have the wonderflul. <laughs> no, it, it needs like a single word name, like yeah. um, meatly. Meatly. <laughs> 
No, it's true though. The names of, of foods and like 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 sunships. What yeah. a great marketing decision it was to call those things. I mean, I, I don't know exactly. Same what, with thin mints. Thin mints, yes. Yeah. Thin mints. People think they're better for you, right? Because they yeah. say like right, like like that, there's a brand of of scale yeah. to weigh yourself called thinner, as if like just by buying that, it's gonna <laughs> have that effect on you. Well, they also uh, advertise it as twenty percent inaccurate. Right. <laughs> oh right. yes, give right. me two of those. I want to market a scale called fatter and see if people actually buy it. Okay, one other thing to talk about Thanksgiving. I hope you're hearing this in time. Stomach space is at a premium. How do you strategize and prioritize? Well, first of all, no appetizers. Mm-hmm. Second of all, no nuts. I mean, if you're hosting Thanksgiving, don't put out yeah. things to nibble on. When you invite people for Thanksgiving, tell them when they should arrive and tell them when you're going to eat. Then it's on, incumbent on them. It's incumbent on you, the guest. To prepare yourself to be very hungry but not completely starving so at if, the time of service. If to grandmother's house you go, have a piece of toast for breakfast. Have a small right. breakfast. Because you know, like, like sometimes if you go too long without eating, you can actually kind of lose your appetite. Yeah. Well, it's not even that. You'll just gorge on the first thing you get and then you won't save room for stuffing. Yes, but also the first thing you get should be... The things you're most excited to eat don't because there's such thing as palate fatigue. Mm-hmm. Your appetite gets dulled the more you eat. So eat the things you're most excited to eat first when you're at your peak of hunger because you will get the most pleasure from them that way. We as uh, uh, we always have an Italian as this, the Italian part of my family Italian Thanksgiving. We pass around the antipasta plate. Do you do you approve? I mean, look. If it's part of your cultural heritage and your family tradition... It's my dad, mostly. Right. He likes to uh, roll the salami around breadsticks. And that is probably fun, and it probably looks good, and I'm sure it tastes good. So if that's your tradition, and if that's not a food that you get to eat that much anyway, I'm not going to knock it. I, my general point is keep your focus on the foods that are the special foods. Yeah. Like, you can yeah. get a handful of cashews yeah. any old day. Don't yeah. walk into someone's house and, and fill up on cashews. <laughs> that would be insane. Right. Dan Pashman is host of The Sporkful, WNYC podcast, The Sporkful. He's also the author of Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Mike. Join us for the great American Thanksgiving Day tradition. The streets of New York City are lined with millions of spectators, and holiday cheer is in the air. A celebration filled with television. That is Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade announcer, Les Marshak, and so is this. And now the gist with Mike Pesca. Okay, now a little more peppy. And now the gist with Mike Pesca. Okay, now after someone has died. And now the gist with Mike Pesca. Oh, that's good. That's good. And now in Ukrainian. (laughs) This is Les Marshak. You know his voice. Let's hear some of that voice. I'll give you a little bit of Today Show. Okay. This is the most ubiquitous. From NBC News, this is Today with Matt Lauer and Savannah Guthrie, live from Studio 1A in Rockefeller Plaza. I mean, that's it. So you know I'm not lying when I tell you that Les Marshak <laughs> is here. And for Thanksgiving, he is the voice of the Thanksgiving parade. It's Thanksgiving. It's tradition. Like, oh, I yeah. wouldn't think there are some products, there are some projects that you wouldn't fit in well with. Maybe not X Games, for instance. Although you could probably do something cool with the X Games. Okay, I'm wrong about that. You know what? <laughs> it's, it's all about throwing the copy away, which yeah. is really interesting because in my years, over the years, it was my you know fairly strong voice with a lot of punctuation, with a lot of uh, energy. Very often I go to sessions now and they'll say, just throw it away a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I have to work that down. Right. You, I mean, the impression is that... 
you're here before me, you're wearing jeans and sweater, that you're wearing a suit while you're doing this. You're a bit formal. There's a formality to it, I think. Well, it's the theater of the mind. Yes, you know, of people out there will listen and say, oh, what does uh, Les look like? Well, actually, I'm a cross between. Uh, Brad Pitt and... Uh, yeah, You're a cross sure, between sure. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. It's yeah. very, very weird. Very odd. Strange. Yes. Red. You look like Rumor or Scout or <laughs> Maddox or whatever their kids are named. Right. Um, but actually, I want to ask you about physically. You got the deep, sonorous voice. You don't seem to have a huge rib cage. Do you know where it comes from? Do you know the physics of the voice? It comes from the uvula. Yeah? Look that up. Have you had your uvula study? <laughs> uh, yes, my uvula. Are you going actually, to leave your uvula to your science? Uvula. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, I inherited this voice from my dad. Yeah. He uh, was not a professional singer or speaker, but he did. He loved to sing, and he had a good voice. You know, when I was growing up, I was so addicted to voices on the radio. I would go to a ball game at Yankee Stadium. I used to live right in the neighborhood, and I would spend 50% watching the play-by-play announcers, Mel Allen and all of the crew, and then watching the game because I just loved broadcasting. So I listened to these voices, and I finally met some of these guys and said, I expected them to be huge, mm-hmm. and they weren't. So tell me about the parade. What are the special requirements of announcing the Thanksgiving parade? Lots of coffee. Mm-hmm. I have to be in my spot at 4.15, 4.30 a.m., and they have me down at Herald Square in a trailer where all these trailers are assembled, the control rooms, and they start rehearsals. They they run through the entire show from 5 a.m. till about 8 a.m. And I have a script that's enormous. And everything is live with the exception of some pre-records that I will do. And that one is the opening. The opening is a, like, six-minute billboard of everybody who you're going to see on the parade. Oh. And it has to be married to the video. So they edit that in advance. So I'll do that early. And then everything else is live. And what basically I'm doing are the commercial billboards and a lot of what they call lead-ins to the commercials before the commercials coming up. You know, the giant balloon. So a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy, and that's what I do until the parade ends at 12 noon. So when you do the Oscars, you'll put oomph into everyone will be excited. It'll be Matt Damon or George Clooney. You have to act the same way for Spider-Man or Jeffrey the Giraffe. Right. The Oscars, that was a whole, that was back in the 90s. I did three of them. Probably the most exciting professional event of my life because it was like, I never dreamed that I would be out at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. Yeah, there's a certain amount of regality that they want. (laughs) That's a good word. Again, old school regality. And excitement. The challenge with the Oscars, and it's a long story, but I'll make it very short. The director, when I got booked on the first Oscar show, he he said, the hardest part about the show was the arrivals section. Now, back then, they didn't have an arrivals program, which they do now. It's a separate show on ABC that precedes the Oscars, where they spend an hour, you know, with the fashions. Back then, it was the first 10 minutes of the actual Oscar broadcast. Mm -hmm. They would be taping videotaping all these arrivals. I'd be in the truck control room outside the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion watching them edit. A writer would be writing on cards like a four-second announcement. There's uh, Brad Pitt, blah, 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 nominated for three. And then they put all these cards together. Five minutes before air, escort me into the announced booth. They would play back the uh, edited pictures once for me. I'd go in, and I said, this is the hardest thing in broadcasting that I've ever done. Uh, the show would begin. I would be pre-recorded live from Hollywood, blah, blah, and then I'd get a cue to go live as they're 
they rolled the tape with all the edited yeah. arrivals. And I'd have four seconds. And if I fell behind, it would be like dominoes. Yeah. Couldn't catch up. Yeah. So I had a production assistant, this young woman. I told her to just tap me on the shoulder every time there was a cut, a screen change. And she would give me a zest yeah. <laughs> right on the shoulder. Went through four minutes of it, cut my mic because I was, I was able to turn my mic on and off and just screamed. I just let out the biggest yelp of my life because there was so much energy in that. You just can't breathe. It's like you're going from one to the other. The hardest thing I've ever done. There is something about that performance state. I remember John Hockenberry of NPR once did an interview about a radio DJ who had Tourette's, pretty severe Tourette's, and it was the kind of stereotypical Tourette's where he would say John Hockenberry is in a wheelchair, and he had the tape of it off the air, and you would hear this announcer when he was talking to Hockenberry saying, fucking cripple, swear to God. Then the mic is on. He never, ever would ever let anyone know he had Tourette's. Somehow he was able to psychologically. I don't even know if that's it's probably well, physiologically. Maybe an editing machine, and uh, yeah. a, a psychological editor that goes into action and just cuts all that bad stuff out. Now, when you say the voiceover community, how at the elite level, how many guys are there? It well, first of all, <laughs> it's changed over the years. When I got into the business, I'm not telling you how long ago that was, but back then there was a voiceover community. We knew practically everyone, and it was on both coasts, basically, at New York and L.A. The old guard people, a lot of them have died. Some of them are still around. They should be working, but unfortunately, they're not going for that sound anymore. So uh, it's kind the of The deep, sonorous, almost voice yeah. of God, but also patriarchal, not inviting, I guess, the uh, knock against the voice of God type sound. No, the, the operative word that you hear more and more now is relatable. Relatable. Be more conversational. Basically, the industry wants. Give me an example. In the parade, a couple of the balloons, the new balloons will be the Elf on the Shelf, Hello Kitty, Papa Smurf. Could you give me a version which is which will sound like great, sonorous announcing, and then give me the more relatable version? If I what, what, about what I'm going to have to do on yeah. the air probably is uh, be more announcer because to cut through the music and the crowd, it'll be coming up on Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. The elf, what is it? The, the elf on the shelf. The elf on the shelf. Plus, you'll hear. Uh, 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 there'll be. Uh, I'm, I'm trying Let's to say think Justin of, Bieber. Justin Bieber. So they want yeah. as much hype as yeah. possible. Yeah. I, doing this work, I cannot be the way I am now, talking yeah. to you conversationally. Um, and then the commercial breaks. Uh, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is brought to you in part by. Macy's by <laughs> Verizon. You know, they, everybody wants their stuff hi highlighted and hyped. Les Marshak is the voice of lots of things, but you're going to hear them all over NBC's broadcast of the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. Thank you so much, Les. It's been a pleasure, Mike. Albuquerque is a turkey, and he's feathered, and he's fine, and he wobbles, and he gobbles, and he's absolutely mine. Gobble, gobble. Thanksgiving is tomorrow, and I am thankful for a couple of things. One, I am thankful for Twitter. If you're not already following us, you should, at SlateGist on Twitter. Second, I'm thankful that today, when you look at the Gist's Twitter feed on mobile, you'll be able to listen to us right there in the Gist's Twitter feed. Right there. And the episode will keep playing while you poke around elsewhere. That used to be a thing. You either had to listen to the thing on Twitter or do something else. Now, do both. This is called a Twitter audio card, and it comes through the folks at SoundCloud. Again, follow us at Slate Gist and look for the latest episode. Not the main course at my dinner, and I told him not to fret. Gobble, 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 get
Coming up, Mike Spiel. Ooh, I cannot live up to that level of hype, but I will bring it down half a notch and say, and now the spiel. Here's the real problem with the real problem here. Let me give you now three interesting sentences I read about Michael Brown, Darren Wilson, and Ferguson. Sentence one, written by Stephen Henderson, Detroit Free Press editorial page editor. As black people, America breaks our hearts over and over again. That is a powerful line in a well-written editorial. It forces the reader to empathize. It invites the reader, white or black, to identify with an aspiration and not a grievance, although a grievance wouldn't be unwarranted in this case. Next line, written by a philosophy professor friend of mine. If this were Israel and Michael Brown were an Ashkenazi Jew, we would have already bulldozed the cop's house. Now, I like this because it is clearly appealing to people from one tradition— Judaism, to put themselves in the place of a person from another tradition. It basically relies on the fact that the reader will know that in Israel, authorities literally bulldoze the houses of killers of Jews, and that resonates and it bridges the gap through a shared sense of indignation. And indignation winds up leading to identification. Now, here's the last sentence. We now know that Michael Brown was much more of a menace than a martyr. Oh, my. This was the lead sentence in a Wall Street Journal op-ed written by Jason L. Riley, who's a member of the journal's editorial board and the author of Please Stop Helping Us, How Liberals Make It Harder for Blacks to Succeed. Riley is black. The sentence is inexcusable. Michael Brown, more a menace than a martyr. A martyr is someone who dies for a cause. Michael Brown is dead. Reforming over policing, bad shootings, devaluing of black lives, that's a cause. Michael Brown died. He animated the cause. Now let's talk about menace, or him being more of a menace. His menace was that he stole cigarellos, he pushed a store clerk, and he got rough with a police officer. So anyone who remembers him as a good person, or a nice young man, or even a complicated human being, and maybe would like some necessary reform to come of his death, no, 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 you're wrong. He's a menace, and now he's a dead menace. But yes, menace and martyr, they have consonants, as do words and wounds. The appalling sentiment, actually an independent clause connected to a broader argument, meant to convey the same thing that Rudy Giuliani was saying on Meet the Press the other day. The article in the Wall Street Journal was titled, The Other Ferguson Tragedy, Homicide is the Leading Cause of Death Among Young Black Men and 90% of Black Murder Victims are Killed by Other Blacks. So yesterday I took this one head on. I pointed out that whites almost always kill whites. I pointed out that we do have an ability to focus on two problems at once, those two problems being citizens killing citizens, and a second problem being cops killing citizens. And isn't this like saying, hey, why are we even talking about ISIS? I mean, white people kill Americans so much more than Middle Eastern Muslims kill Americans. The real problem is white people killing other Americans. Or talking about the GM ignition switch, right? Isn't it like saying, hey, most road deaths are killed by drinking and driving or just driver error? Why are we even talking about this statistically less likely occurrence that GM made cars that could kill you? You know the phrase, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good? Here's the inverse. Don't make the usual the enemy of the tragic. Some horrible things happen less often than other horrible things. It doesn't mean we should ignore the less likely ones. Tom Joad did not say, wherever there's a statistically prevalent injustice, I'll be there. But I want to give a Thanksgiving gift to you, and here it is. 
It's a tactic, a tactic for when invariably talk turns to Ferguson over Thanksgiving dinner. And someone, it's usually an uncle, right? Like the uncle cohort is pretty big on this one. But someone says a version of why are we talking about this? We need to worry more about black on black crime. Now, hopefully they will be careful, this uncle in question, and they won't put it this way. It's the thug behavior exhibited by individuals like Michael Brown, which puts a target on the backs of other black men. Because, you know, that sentence that I just read is so howlingly appalling, and it leaves the uncle in question open to really easy counter arguments. Like, so you're saying if a kid in Missouri robs cigars, you're going to want to shoot a kid in Colorado if those kids are both black? Or you could say, wait a minute, if a target is on someone's back, you probably shouldn't shoot. Or you could say, hey, whatever puts the target on one's back, whoever pulls the trigger is still guilty of murder. Or you could say, you know what? I think about human life. You think about targets. So you don't want to say any of those sentences over dinner because that will only serve to alienate and shame whoever was foolish enough to speak in the cliche of targets on the back of young black men. Oh, by the way, the thug behavior exhibited by individuals like Michael Brown, which puts a target on the backs of other black men. The guy who said that was Jason Riley. That was his penultimate line in his journal piece today. So here's what I would do. I would do this. Here's my strategy. Here's my outreach strategy. I'd say, listen, uncle, uncle Steve, uncle Jay, uncle Enzo, uncle Gustav, you're not racist, right? I know you're not racist, but I got to say this whole, let's focus on the real problem. Blacks killing blacks. Now I'm not saying for you to argue that means you're racist, I'm not saying the insensitivity and illogic is rooted in racism because no one wants to be called racist. But you gotta admit, it's not super unracist. Like, if you say that, people in the room aren't gonna say, no, that guy over there, that guy's not a racist. If someone who doesn't love and know you, like I do, Uncle Llewellyn, if someone heard that, they wouldn't say, well, now here's an individual who clearly values the lives of young black men. I am just telling you this because I love you. Of course, if you can cite your longstanding commitment to crime abatement, if you've been doing candlelight vigils for kids gunned down in the inner city, if you've published several peer-reviewed studies on recidivism rates, Uncle Dave, we might give you a pass. But if your commitment to the issue is that sentence that you just uttered, and a segment that you saw on the O'Reilly Factor? I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't say that. Anyway, the important thing is this. It's Thanksgiving. And I want to thank you for listening to my thoughts and for not quoting Sean Hannity back at me and for buying me that subscription to the Wall Street Journal in the first place. And most of all, for making sure that here, here, right here in this room, over a beautiful bird, among a loving family, in a warm, safe house, making sure that no one has yet mentioned global warming. No, 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 no one said the phrase carbon levels, I swear. Uh, let's talk about the bears and the lions. No, 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 not their disappearing habitats. The football teams, they need to establish the run. No, Uncle Leonard, no! And now the credits. And that's it. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has broken her silence regarding the issue of her neighbor in apartment 1L, his blasé about bedbugs. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, broke his silence regarding nightmares induced by Snuggles, the fabric softener bear. His eyes are dead. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has broken his silence regarding his distaste for my jokes regarding the difference between the author of the Executioner's Song and Joseph Smith. 
You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. Get our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. We are on Yo. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash slate gist. I'm going to go over there over this four-day weekend. Email us at thegist at slate.com. Since breaking my silence isn't a phrase that really applies to me or what I do or how you experience me, I will say this in all sincerity. Have a serene Thanksgiving. These people around the table are your family. You share their DNA. Find the good in them, and you find the good in yourself. Thanks for listening. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gab Fest, was the grand jury decision in the Darren Wilson case a miscarriage of justice? Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.